simulation i'm your host don sakian very excited and also one of the most important topics that we can be talking about challenging perverse incentives in science we have dr lewis metzger joining us on the show hello hi thanks for having me yes for round number two and the first time we talked about your company tira biosciences self-free molecular discovery that links in the bio for you guys to check out episode one with lewis also, at the very top of the bio, you will find Lewis's Medium article that he wrote. That article is about a scandal that occurred at Duke, where the, the foundation of scientific truth was being at, it was, it was at risk and at harm and being maliciously, the perverse incentives were at play. And Lewis wrote a very detailed article about, on Medium about the entire story. And you can check that out. It's the first link. Again, go and check that out for the, for the detail. Lewis and I will be spending this episode talking about how to challenge these perverse incentives in the scientific system. So, Lewis, let's, let's start things off with this importance of the foundation of science. You know, your new think tank, BioCaptivate, is really also focused on these new incentive systems in our social fabric to make the foundation of science really powerfully robust and true and just impenetrable by these perverse incentives. So teach us about your thoughts around this. So, uh, you know, part of this is, is really a discussion of the culture of science. And like all cultures, uh, there's heterogeneity in it, and it, it shifts around. Um, but uh, I think that in terms of incentivizing science, uh, we need to think as science as a whole uh, and what it's trying to accomplish. So science is really a collective endeavor. And I think when one looks at Nobel Prizes and uh, publication records and and how scientists are often recognized and rewarded uh, that recognition is usually uh, individualistic and I think to build strong science it's really teamwork it's a collectivism and it would be nice to uh, to recognize scientists uh, as large groups who've accomplished uh, large things rather than individuals who've accomplished large things with a great deal of help and and so, you know, my article about the Halinga scandal um, is full of technical detail, it's full of uh, some interpersonal detail, mm -hmm. but I think one of the themes uh, that comes out of it is uh, why do people do science and, and how, how can we make science uh, incentivized to be reproducible? And, and one of those things is conceiving of science as a building. So you want your foundations to be strong. You don't want them to be built on sand. And, and every small piece of science, every, every paper, uh, every piece of data that goes into a published paper uh, is part of that foundation. And, and we're really building, as scientists, we're building the architecture of something that we can't, we don't know what it's going to look like when we're finished. But what we can do is make sure that the parts that we build are solid and can be reproduced. And I think that if there are any lessons to take away from uh, many of these scientific misconduct scandals, it's the, it's the price that's paid by everyone, not just scientists, but you know, taxpayers, um, yeah. businesses, the whole community, uh, when parts of the edifice that they're building 
is built on, on uh, you know, unsteady foundations. Yes, yes. This view of the foundation of science being what has really driven so much of society's success over the period of the Industrial Revolution until today, that if with, without really our, our ability to build robustly on top of this scientific foundation, we wouldn't have all these incredible uh, luxuries that we have today that we're so privileged with. And so when you let little tiny parasites in with this perverse system of prioritizing money over prioritizing science and so many other things that we're, we're harming our ability to innovate. We're harming our, one of our only things that we can call objectively true, these reproducible scientific experiments that give us a better real understanding of the world that we live in. And you know, I think for your viewers who don't know how the scientific uh, publishing process works uh, in general, uh, and there are some exceptions, uh, there's usually a premium put on novelty of the research. And if in the course of doing, one re doing one's research and publishing it, one repeats parts of someone else's research, that's good, but the novelty and the recognition uh, for that novelty is are what drives the publication and review process in most cases. The first, and the, first the first, being the first. And it's great to be the first. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and it should, of course, be encouraged. Yeah. We need people to push the boundaries. Yes. But I think we need to find ways as a society, uh, and, and more specifically in the scientific community, to recognize people who reproduce science Correct. or who go the extra mile to make sure that their published science is minutely reproducible. And I think if you look back in history, uh, when scientific publication involved uh, the trading of letters between amateur scientists, uh, there was a much greater emphasis on passing the baton. So one person picking up the other's work and being able to continue it. And so there was an incentivization with one's correspondence uh, to build something that, that could, be, could be expanded. And I think that in our rush to, to value priority yeah. these days, yeah. you know, we're, we're not incentivizing the right thing. And, and, and if you look what, what, what Halinga appears to have done, at what Halinga appears to have done, if you look at uh, uh, a large body of, of proven and alleged research misconduct uh, in science, it's largely in the pursuit of that priority status. Yes, and this would probably be a good time for you to teach us about the, the sheer emotional state and that you were feeling because you know this is around 11 years ago there is just a, just this overwhelming feeling that that graduate students postdocs just have such a power asymmetry to professors and deans they can't vocalize that there's this massive issue with the foundation of science happening and it's just overwhelmingly discouraging when this sitting on their royal throne this this gated institutional narrative of ivory tower and you can't take me off of tenure where I'm getting the $250,000 a year professorship position and and teach us about what was actually you know going through you at that at that time well so so it's interesting uh, the, the culture of, of advanced research in biological sciences and, and physics and, and chemistry uh, is often one of isolation. So as a student or as a postdoctoral researcher, uh, one usually works on one's own project. Sometimes it's collaborative, but it, it's a relatively isolating experience. And 
uh, long days spent in the lab, your closest friends or, or at least uh, um, you know, cohort, uh, daily cohort are, is comprised of the people who happen to work with you. And, oh, uh, and that can be friends are your pipettes. And well, your yeah, the, yeah, yeah, usually not inanimate objects, although I must <laughs> say sometimes it felt that way. But, but, and then communities do are built, but um, it, it's generally isolating. And so if you think of that isolation, but then you also think of a perverse incentive, and I, I alluded to it when we last spoke, but I can go into more detail now. I think it should be understood that the model of big research universities is to harvest government grants and private foundation grants. Uh, and, and those grants are awarded to faculty members, uh, professors, uh, who apply to those grants using data that their postdoctoral scholars and their graduate students and their technicians produce. And, uh, and you know, those grants are assessed for their novelty usually. And, uh, but are they second checking all of the data, making reproducibility? Oh, the review process for grants is very brief. Yeah. Uh, and uh, most of the time, uh, the proposals are viewed only in a cursory manner by most of the committee members. So uh, it's, it's not as rigorous of a process as people might think. As but we need it to be. As, and as yeah. we need it to be. But I think more importantly, it encourages the training of more and more graduate students, more and more postdocs, because this is a bit of a pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. So you need these laborers who are getting an education, it is true, uh, to, an, to a point, mm -hmm. uh, to generate data, which the professor uses to publish papers, which help get grants. But then those grants are usually, uh, when received, the money is sliced into two parts. And often for universities like Duke and, and UCSF, and you know, many big schools have, uh, take 100% off the top. So they take half of the grant money to keep the lights on. And surely that money goes to keeping the lights on in part. But what you've seen in the last you know, two or three decades is this huge proliferation of deans and, and, oh, and no. administration. Yeah. Uh, because all this money is getting sliced off the top of these, these government grants. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it causes this feedback loop. And, uh, and it really incentivizes universities to become paper mills. Uh, and, and this, I don't think, is always consistent with good science and reproducible science, because the incentive is really to generate money using this pyramid scheme of trainees. And I would hasten to say that individual professors don't really have the option of opting out of the system. Yeah. Now, they can mitigate it, but I, I wouldn't say that the system is anyone's design but it's evolved into what it, it is now, and I think we should, we should look at changing that. So that's a major perverse incentive that is a subtext of the whole Halinga story, which uh, your viewers can read about in detail. Oh man, it just, that makes me feel like the, the administration is becoming like bloated, oh, yeah, and, and it's becoming like a like parasite on the actual scientific foundation because these administrator roles, how often are they actually really powerful uh, mentorship or industry-related connection roles, you know, the things that actually advance the scientific edge forward. And that's what we need to be thinking about. You are also explaining the, the mentality that, you know, getting all these grad students and getting all of the all the postdocs so that you can make more data because with the data then you can make more papers and then you can get more money and yeah. that's this whole cycle of we're stressing people out to make data instead of being like creatively explore the edge of science and let's figure out a better way to funnel the money in for that 
And, and, and another part of this is education. So readers, people who read about the Linga article I wrote um, and, and the scandal uh, that it discusses uh, might think a bit about education and, and, and universities' responsibility for educating people. Because I, I will say in science graduate training, it's a mixture of training and education. Uh, and one could, you know, could quibble about how much of each. Uh, but in the end, there is ostensibly education going on. And for me, that education was real because I had a conscientious thesis advisor yeah. uh, who really stood by me. And, uh, and I was fortunate in that regard. But I think that universities exist in a privileged place in society, in Western society by tradition, yeah. uh, because they evolved from these, these you know. What's the endowment, eight and a half billion? Eight and a half billion at, at Duke, Duke, but Harvard's is far larger. Harvard's is like 30 billion yeah, or something? Tens 20, of billions. Tens of billions, yeah. yeah. So, so, so lots of money in this. And in, you know, in ancient times, universities were, uh, you know, had a clerical nature to them in the Western tradition. So, you know, they were offshoots of the Catholic Church um, uh, to an extent and had always existed outside of the normal secular laws. So basically they got a pass on, on regulation. And even in these modern times in a secular country, uh, we still have echoes of that privilege yeah. because if businesses behaved the way universities get away with, yeah, yeah. they would be in great regulatory trouble. <laughs> so yeah. the way I see it is one can't have it That's both ways. Yeah. One, can't, one can't get a pass on regulation and yeah. act as a, yes. a money harvesting business. Yes, yes. So I strongly think that we should go back to, in some way or another, a focus on education, the privilege that providing that education gives to universities and also the responsibility entailed in that privilege. Yeah, yeah. And this is a very interesting point. So many people talk about the regulations and the laws that go with having to work with the FDA or whatever it may be in order to get your, get your business to be able to produce the product or service that it yeah. wants to make. But when there's this, this, these perverse incentives that are occurring in something that is you're, you're taking us through a historical transition of the university system becoming what it is now in the United States, that where are the, where are the rent seekers? How can we identify the rent seekers, the, the ones that are siphoning away money from the foundation of scientific truth for their own perverse incentives? And how can we just you know, really start shattering those perverse incentives and do we need indus do we need more like industry in involved do we need you know partly on like the just the spiritual awakening of the professors and the and the universities and the grant system what is what's our best case to target this well it's a hard it's a difficult question to answer and it's such a multifaceted problem that there are probably many approaches uh, i for one believe that there should be stronger government regulation of universities uh, in the U.S. government regulation. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think it should be stifling, but I think that it should, should require uh, adherence to certain standards in both treatment of students and postdoctoral fellows, uh, you know, with a level of protection um, and recourse uh, uh, to, you know, uh, recourse to uh, referee disputes uh, between researchers and mentor and mentee. Uh, I also think that it should provide uh, a better accounting of what 
the overhead money that's sliced off the tops of all of these research grants is used for. Yes. And I think that with transparency in that yes. regard, yes. Um, uh, it might still be taken, but it can be used for probably activities and purposes for which it was better intended. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. Transparency is huge, um, even in just something as simple as where our, our you, this is also taxpayer dollars. This is what is also oh, yeah. one of the main, like, mind is, is, because it's just like, this is taxpayer dollars. This could be going towards the scientific advancements that we need to eradicate yeah. poverty. These are the things exactly. that, that we want to tackle with scientific advancement and not uh, the, the yeah, the other crap. I want to just a couple things that I want you to, uh, to teach us as well because this is important. This is these these perverse incentives are still happening parasitically on the scientific foundation. So the people that are sometimes like in the shoes of the eighteen of you that had to like co-sign the petition and petition this forward, um, there are people that are in your shoes right now and they can't speak up. And so the, the idea of highlighting whistleblowers and helping them with a voice, what do you recommend for people that may currently be in those shoes? Well, what I would recommend is uh, find colleagues, find your community, uh, do this together, uh, in part because so many of our faculty were so spineless in my old department of Duke Biochemistry, not all of them, but many of them, just because of that, uh, the students, I think, were drawn quite a bit closer to each other, the students and postdocs, all the trainees. And I think it was, it was in response to a difficult environment. Um, but in a way, it was, it was fortunate because uh, it brought us together at a time that we thought we could make a difference. And we knew there was some safety in numbers. Exactly. And I think that this idea of, of fostering community, and, and to be clear, I think it shouldn't just be, you know, whistleblowers shouldn't just look for community among similar types of trainees, even among scientists. They need to build their network and their friendships outside of the laboratory with people who have perspectives in different fields. Yes. And I think that that's something in the culture of science that, that needs right. to be done more. Uh, diversity this, of thought. This diversity of thought, diversity of of friends and network. Yes. And I'll admit that for many years of my life, I was not too good at that. Uh, and so, so build your community would be my advice. Um, and my other piece of advice would be, uh, be sure that what you're doing is something that it's a battle that you have to win or you want to try to win. Um, because uh, you know the pressures applied can be significant, as yeah. as seen, uh, you know, as your viewers can read about. And um, uh, in the end, I'm I can't speak for all the other signers, but I would guess that most of us would not have done anything differently, um, uh, despite yeah. you know despite the, what came of it uh, and what didn't come of it. Uh, I, I th would have done the same thing again, but it's lonely. And in particular, when you have this huge asymmetry between the power of the faculty and the ease with which graduate students and postdoctoral fellows can be dismissed. And one thing that isn't talked about much and didn't really play into the Holinga scandal, but, but is often a feature of other scientific misconduct, is that many of our, our scientists, especially postdoctoral scholars, are here on work visas mm -hmm. with their families. Mm -hmm. And so when they're dismissed from their positions, they have to leave the country in short order. 
So think of think of what a symmetry of power With that. that 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 hangs over people in those positions, and how how hard they can be made to work, and Correct. how how much they are disincentivized to to whistleblow, whistleblow because yeah. it's they and their family getting kicked out of the country. country yeah. So something to think about. Wow, that's a really important one to have highlighted as well. These power asymmetries in general in our social fabric have caused, in many ways, the prioritization of, of shareholders instead of inclusive stakeholding. Yeah, all these different types of ways that we're updating the code. We have these yeah. new code deployments that need to be happening, and, and one of the main ones is to the foundation of science. Now, there are alternatives. Also, that you know, you you and Biokeptory spend so much time discussing exactly what is the best ways to tackle this this diversity of thought, especially in science. Working with artists, working with entrepreneurs, turning scientists into entrepreneurs, like at Indie Bio, at you know Khan Academy, Minerva Schools. There are these you listed off all these great alternative examples to this kind of at times this drudgery that sometimes feels like the the graduate school postdoc asymmetry of power. So tell us about these, these examples of, of alternatives. Well, these alternatives are experiments, uh, to be clear, and I think that they will complement uh, what's already done, in some cases replace. Uh, you know, the Minerva project is, is a great example. The Minerva University, uh, its first class is graduating uh, this May. Uh, it's a four-year baccalaureate program. Uh, but the students are, are trained, their undergraduates are, are, are educated in a way very different than most four-year universities. And there's really a focus on thinking, thinking and the study of philosophy early on, and then the study of data and how it can be manipulated, how it can be used and misused. And then after that, the students build upon this foundation and specialize. And uh, I think it's quite a bit different than many undergraduate programs. Uh, I think it, it, interestingly enough, has some similarity to really ancient educational programs in the Western tradition, at least. And uh, it will be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, IndieBio and incubators, tech incubators and accelerators like it are, I think, poised to really expand, to really incubate more companies as uh, I think the next, next industrial revolution is going to be the biology revolution, yes. the synthetic biology revolution. And there's so much work to be done. There's a great deal of work. And I think that trainees in academia, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, are beginning to see you don't have to spend eight years as a postdoc and maybe get a junior faculty position yeah, yeah. and maybe get tenure you know, many years after that or not. Uh, there are other avenues, and you know, one of those avenues is start a company. Even if it fails, maybe especially if it fails, you've learned something. And so building these serial biological entrepreneurs out of uh, people who have been trained in, in the academic tradition I think is really good, and might, yeah. it might serve as sort of a release valve. So yeah. help drain this excess of grad students and postdocs yes. out of, of universities where they're getting underpaid and, and, and mostly underappreciated and into a place where they have volition and yeah. they can make the most of their creativity. And yeah, some will succeed and some will fail, but if it were me, I would rather take my chances on that. Mm -hmm. And so the folks at IndieBio are really uh, enhance, you know, advancing that cause. Um, so 
you know, Khan Academy is another example. So someone with an internet connection can go learn, you know, fairly advanced topics uh, at their own pace yes. on the internet. And is it the same as standing in a classroom with someone? Uh, maybe not quite, but for big 300 person, you know, giant auditorium, uh, uh, you know, physics 101 or, or biology 101, I think that many of the times, uh, in many instances, Khan Academy's classes are superior. Yes. And so this idea of democratizing learning yeah. and just putting it in the hands of people who may not be able to afford to pay you know, $1,000 a credit hour, but they have a computer and an internet connection. And so I think all these things are shifting the ground on which these ivory towers are built. Yeah. And they're going to have to remodel and adapt yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if they can adapt and remodel or if, they're old, if those old maps will be obsolete in a way and the new maps of, of running these experiments in education um, from 18 until, until 28 as potentially running these little permutations of ideas to, to bring into reality, especially in the synthetic biology explosion. I'm totally in agreement with you that we should try more of these permutations in the field. There's also a very important, uh, this, it's like, a, it's an ethos. It's an ethos of, of behind the groove is what we were talking about. Our, our friends are working on a project called Behind the Groove where they're highlighting who else in addition to the star of music is actually making the music happen. The audio engineers, the video, the, the, all of the people that put hard work and time into being able to market and sell and all this kind of stuff that is unseen. So same thing in science, same thing in industry is that you have large companies where you only know the top three co-founders of the company, you don't know the other hundred or more people that make it happen. In science, when you have your lab or you have your uh, professorship, that, you, that usually you don't know the, the grad students and postdocs that are doing all, a lot of the hard work. So making a stronger culture of rewarding the people that are behind the groove in science that are yeah. pushing along, and this is a big thing in like Nobel Prizes as well, is uplifting all of those that helped you achieve it. Well. You know, as much good as the Nobel Prize has done uh, in its history, especially uh, for lifting out of obscurity people who made these brilliant contributions that no one else was going to make at that time, uh, despite that uh, being a great thing, I'd like to see an alternative to Nobel Prizes, mm -hmm. and I'd like to see uh, team-based prizes yes. that reach back along lines of publications and reach back to all the people in a trail of research that leads to some That's striking great. and game-changing discovery. That's great. Now, I mean, it would be hard to do. Okay. Uh, it would require almost the blockchain of, of science yeah, to track, okay. but that's coming. That's definitely yes, coming. Yes. And, and I think that uh, that would be more fair because certainly the leaders of many research programs maybe do deserve the bulk of the credit in some cases. Right. Not yeah. all cases, some cases. Yeah. But I think that there's many others where they're, they've built the conditions for the science to flourish, and then they're harvesting the gains and, and getting the accolades. And uh, if you look at the really ethical people uh, among faculty, you'll see they're the ones who are quick to share the credit with the people who, yeah. who really yes. did the work with them. And, uh, it, it ought to be more common, and there ought to be ways where we can incentivize it. And, and that's, that's why, that's one of the hardest things 
about moving from academia to industry is going from, I'm an individual contributor, I'm counting the number of papers that I'm the first author on, or I'm the corresponding author on, and then you move to industry and you're mostly the author, middle author of you know, 50 people on the occasional paper that the legal department clears you to, to publish. And that's fine, that's good, that's okay. But it's a, it's a frame shift in, in thinking and a frame shift in how we, we speak about and think about and value ourselves. Yeah. So, and, and, and I, think, I think science is a team endeavor. Yes. There's a lot of people who talk about it, but there should be less talk and more practice. Yes, yes. I love, I love the, the, the faster that someone gives credit to other people that were involved with what they were doing, the more it's authentic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the less it's ego-driven. Science should not be ego-driven. Science is collective-driven. These, these advancements in science are coming through you. They're not coming for you. They're coming for civilization to advance on. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I, I like that imagery. Uh, you know, a principal investigator as a conduit uh, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the destination of, of good science. And so, I, yeah. that's great. I like that. Can yeah. I borrow that? We can, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, all ideas are no ones. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they belong to the all that is. Um, interesting. Now, I think another important thing that we should talk about is the notion of a, of a growing pie as well, the positive sum game instead of the zero sum game. So there's, a, there's this, a, the, the edge of knowledge is constantly being pushed and it's growing and it's expanding and there's more and more cool things. You just mentioned blockchain 10 years ago, no one was really talking about it, now everyone's talking about it. So there's more and more cool ways to add things to the scientific foundation and now this team sport, these incentive systems are more important than ever. Tell us both about the expanding um, positive sum game as well as some of your favorite new incentives that we should start applying to this. Yeah, so shifting, shifting towards what is a positive sum game and how do we incentivize it. I think the sharing of credit, the sharing of ownership yeah. um, is really important even if it's small wedges of ownership yeah. uh, in scientific discoveries that are then commercialized, that, that should be spread around liberally uh, because the, the people who have built the infrastructure or the project that has led to whatever intellectual property, uh, whatever trade secrets have some commercial value, uh, they need to share in that. And I think that another, another way to, to go about uh, incentivizing this is this positive sum uh, game is really to get people thinking about it earlier. And this involves the stories we tell children. This involves, um, this involves the public sphere. This is, this is outside of the academy. This is, you know, this is in how, how science interacts with the general public and how scientists portray themselves. And think of all the movies you've seen where there are scientific protagonists of one sort or another. When they're not when they're not portrayed as as eccentric, uh, deranged sorts that are, you know, uh, monomaniacally pursuing some some dangerous project. Doctor uh, Evil. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, when they're not Doctor Evil, uh, they uh, are doing something heroic, and and usually yeah. individually heroic, uh, or at most with a small group. And I don't want to see any more of those stories. Mm. I want to see the stories of 
how the Human Genome Project went. Mm -hmm. And the big chain of all of those involved. Yeah. And the big projects that are going on now in science that are essentially infrastructure projects. And you know, they they build an infrastructure uh, and and conduits, uh, but they need to be recognized. And I, I, I think if if more kids grow up thinking of science as not individual heroism yes. at the laboratory bench, but see it as a, as a team, yes. team sport, I think this will be much better. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't, shouldn't reward individual totally, merit, totally. Uh, but, but really I think we were too far uh, yeah, in the individualistic direction. side of things. Agreed, and nothing on, almost nothing on the industry side is individualistic like that. Oh, every, almost everything no, is no, collaborative. No, no, it's all team-based. All team-based. For me, it was a culture shock. Same when thing I, with school. I mean, yeah. school, we were just had, you know, Esther Rajiski on the show, and she's doing this, this similar yeah. thing. Is like, what are you doing with these kids that are all in their little bubbles in the rows and stuff? The, this is ridiculous. Have them collaborate. Have them share yeah. ideas. This is how you do it in industry. Yeah. yeah, 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 and I mean that—that that is not to say that industry does things perfectly. Every, you know, every every sphere has its challenges, uh, but one one thing that, in my experience, it's done very well, and a really good experience that I've had both at Tira Biosciences and at Novartis is this team-based approach to science, yeah. and and uh, um, I really like that. And and there's team-based approaches to science in academia, but it just has to be pushed. Uh, yeah. I love how you use the word wedges too. That's a really good one. Wedges plus blockchain for uh, immutable decentralized <laughs> ledger of, of what scientific advances have happened. I mean, if our collective learning became uh, put became immutable on a, on a decentralized ledger, I think that'd be fascinating to see who contributed to which scientific block advancements out into the fog of war where we don't know. Um, and then, you know, we make that advancement and then you can see that this many, these many grad students partake partook and took, you know, 0.5%, 1.7% of the wedges of the project. Like that sounds very interesting and a great future. Well, I mean, it, it certainly could be great in some ways. I think we also have to be careful about overmeasuring, ah, uh, yes. because there's some things that defy measurement, and you know, all that goes on in someone's brain isn't capturable by blockchain, at least ah, not sure, yet. Sure, so, sure, sure. you know, well, my those, creative work was worth thirty percent of the wedge, and yeah. And I so I think 15. Yeah, I think yeah. the arguments will continue, blockchain or not. But but I think yeah. that 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 still attempting to attach people to the work that, that they're doing now and what it's going to do in the future and give them credit for uh, future uh, derivatives of their current work is important. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, the inclusive stakeholding system with, a, with, a, with the scientific edge as well so yeah. that if you put out a solid block out you can get further scientific advances happening from your block. If the block is, has, has uh, lack of, if it's, if it's rotten that yeah, you, it's, it's horrible. That's the worst thing to do is contribute a rotten uh, block with these perverse incentive systems. Uh, Luz, I want to ask you, do you sure. know um, if w geopolitically, how do other places in the world handle the scientific um, foundation of knowledge and incentive structures? So I'm not going to, I won't claim expertise where I don't have it. Yeah. I can make a stab at that, yes. um, but with the caveat that I'm more familiar with universities set up in 
sort of the Western tradition, especially European tradition, and they are historically constituted differently throughout the world. I mean, if you look at the history of, of you know, many large countries in Asia, uh, many of their university systems at different points in their history served as essentially training grounds for officials. And so, uh, but, but then if you look in the European tradition, you're looking at training grounds for clerics and, and so, you know, and clerics often served as officials in, you know, because there wasn't really much separation between a kingdom and the church uh, for, you know, much of, of, of history. So I think there's some, some overlaps, but there's definitely different flavors. Um, uh, different, you know, uh, it's different. Um, budget sizes. Is a budget sizes, as well. I mean, if you look at the University of Beijing, yeah, uh, yeah. is, you know, it's the Harvard of China, uh, if I might say so. And that's where Beijing Genomics Institute is? Uh, I believe. BJ, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's, you know, the, the, these, in terms of budgets, countries with large economies everywhere, regardless of, of their, you know, their background and traditions are erecting universities yeah. much like Duke University with the same pressures. And, That's right. and so I, I suspect that the issue is global, uh, yeah, yeah. certainly, but there's different flavors. And there, there's even different, different training trajectories. Uh, you know, one, one interesting thing is to compare and contrast European universities versus US uh, universities uh, and the time that it takes to get a doctoral uh, yeah, degree. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it looks quite a bit different, actually. So there's even country to country uh, variances within the same overall tradition. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're still edu educating people based on systems where we dress up in funny robes once a year uh, and uh, you know, that are based on clerical garb. So maybe, maybe it's time to get beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, what, whatever ends up uh, being this new code that is deployed to maximize the foundation of science to be innovated on in the new incentive structures, it's up to us to push the conversations out further, have more scientists and more artists and people out. Exactly. This, yeah, this is the crucial thing. This is a lot of what your new work is with BioCaptivate. You know, the diversity of thinking is going to make better incentive structures. Exactly. And that, and that starts with, with how people are connected to each other. Um, people, people put each other in boxes, and, or they put themselves in boxes. And because of that, they put each other in boxes. And all of humanity puts everyone else in a box. And people don't fit neatly in boxes. I think that most, most of your thoughtful viewers will have long ago experienced that uh, uh, and, and made that observation. And, and so one is not just a scientist, you're a human first. And, uh, and just as one isn't only an artist, and one is so many more things. And so I think that people need to, need to break out of their comfortable social structures. Mine, of course, is a bunch of nerdy, like, biological researchers, right? I mean, I could perfectly sit among them and do nothing but talk about yeah, yeah. biochemistry, but where the improvements to the world can be made and where yes. uh, special insights can be made and where people can find each other to help each other when things like yes, yes, the Holinga scandal yes, unfold yes, yes, yes. come when you bring people together and you you have a diversity of input and opinion. And, and, and it increases transparency too. 
So. I remember talking to Peter Bogosian about who did was a big part of the hoax papers exposing how the scientific foundation of truth can be uh, at risk of 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 of, 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 of hoaxes, and it, it can't be. And if we have to prevent that, and one of the ideas that I was passing along that it would be great to see would be um, a really fast and easy way for people to be able to identify things that they thought were malevolent data that weren't weren't and posting those up on you know a top kind of like leaderboard system of of then of then of then people that go to um, to 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 validate is this real is this not real um, can we withdraw from the foundation of knowledge before it gets even more rotten um, and so these types of thoughts are interesting what are the top uh, rotten incentive systems and how can we get rid of those how can we have like a leaderboard of the most rotten incentive systems and the most creative new incentive systems and have people working towards those well it's a it's a tough question that would take probably hours to address but uh, to your first point there are um, types of software that can detect uh, manipulation of images in scientific papers and manuscripts so if people have been yeah, That's good. playing with yeah, yeah. playing with their images, uh, and and most journals now uh, require um, the submission of of unedited images for data of certain types, uh, and I think that's been you know very helpful. And so, you know, that's quasi automated, or at least can be used to flag things that are suspicious. Um, but in the end, many things that look suspicious aren't really. Uh, it could be sloppiness. It could be just poor quality of data. So it's really hard to automate that without talking to people and saying, hey, what, what am I seeing here? And so I think that's always going to be important. Now, journal structures can be set up to incentivize uh, open journals. Open journals. So yes. I'm a, you know, I, I, I regret that for various reasons so far, I haven't published in too many open journals. But as I publish scientific works in the future, I really, really am fond of eLife. Uh, eLife. Uh, Nobel laureate Randy Sheckman of Berkeley um, pretty much pissed off the whole science publishing industry uh, in his crusade to really build eLife and push it and push for open publishing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good things about this. One of the neat things about eLife uh, is that the reviewers of a paper are not anonymous to each other. Yeah. So. If someone is deep sixing someone else's manuscript because it's a competitor, yep. they can't get away with that. And so I think that those sorts of very simple uh, internet-enabled uh, um, transparent you know, yeah. manipulations can be really can can really protect quality of research. And I also think that uh, the physics field and the mathematics field has been much better than biology. Uh, and chemistry about uh, um, uploading uh, preprints, so or pre-submission drafts of papers. Okay. So that grabs priority for the overarching ideas, mm -hmm. even if the experiments themselves aren't fully baked. Yeah. You know, maybe they're suggestive, but there's more controls that need to be done. And then, with the whole community able to comment and help them out, that that work gets massaged into something really nicely well controlled that after some number of iterations finally gets submitted to a journal of record for proper peer review. But in the interim, one can get their priority 
but still not be rushed in terms of doing the experiments badly to rush it into the journal. So that's, that's, you know, that's another thing. Um, and I think that, that uh, you know, reviewers not being anonymous to each other, uh, that Checkman has been pushing uh, and uh, successfully, I think. And this, this idea of, um, uh, you know, transparency of, of the data submitted and, and pre-submission of a draft uh, yeah. really it takes the pressure off and so I think that's where things are headed and there's any number of software platforms that are and startups that are yeah. helping to make that happen so those are some ideas and then there's there's governmental ideas yeah. how do we fund how do public how do how does tax money get funneled to research and mm -hmm. and how do we distribute grants yeah, yeah. and uh, I would say that there should be far fewer grants per reviewer so that they can take a deep dive into those grants. That's interesting. And yeah. that maybe we should shift away from only prioritizing uh, novel research to prioritizing useful uh, um, extensions of less novel research, but still with a new twist. And uh, I, yes. I think it's a subtle difference, but, yeah. but it's, it's the difference between science and engineering, but you really need to have both yeah. Uh, yeah. to make the world work and to make the world better. Yep, yep. And this, this also, when you're talking about the role of artificial intelligence in the edge of science and verifying some data, this is very interesting to see. Uh, can potentially this be an extension of, our, of us that helps uh, verify uh, the scientific advancements that we're making faster than we can? Um, that's a very cool area Well, I think one can check certain types of data, but for some of these complex ideas that the data fit within that framework. Uh, I won't say AI won't be able to do it, but it seems as if there's subtlety there that is hard to teach machines. Yes, yes. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. I'm, I'm really interested uh, in, in terms of what we'll see in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. So yes. it's an exciting time to be alive in all Absolutely. fields, uh, um, but in research science especially. Yeah. Lewis, we are extremely grateful that you stepped up and wrote this because this when I was reading it I was just I felt what you guys felt when you were there and to me I felt trapped I felt trapped like I didn't have a voice and these are some of those are some of the worst feelings to have is where you can't speak up on behalf of science on behalf of other people that that this is so such an important story to be communicating to prevent it from happening again in the future to enrich people's perception to be able to catch it so we're really grateful that you stepped oh, up you're, you're most welcome and I mean I, I wanted to keep the discussion here uplifting and and I'm really appreciative that you've you've guided it that in that direction but I would say that, that the article about the Holinga scandal uh, is a pretty sordid uh, tale. And, uh, and I won't say that the, 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 the bad people necessarily uh, suffered in the end. Uh, so it, it's a morality tale. Uh, but as much as bad things happened, as you point out, it's an opportunity to have really valuable conversations about yes. how do we change this culture? Yes. And and how can we be more fair? And how can we prevent this bullshit from happening again? Amen. And, uh, and, and in that, so good has come of it. Correct, yeah. So. We have, we have our, our, our roots have dug into hell so that our leaves can 
blossom up to heaven. Exactly. Yes, yes. Lewis, thank you again so much for coming on to the pleasure. show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Alan. Yes, the challenging the perverse incentives in science has been such fascinating discussion. Um, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate you. We would love for you to check out and read the full post that Lewis put on Medium. Again, that's the first link in the bio. You can also watch our first interview with Lewis. That link's in the bio as well. Have more conversations with the people around you in your communities in very neurodiverse settings and really challenge some of these perverse incentives. Think about how we can solve them together. Build up on that foundation of science is the most robust thing that civilization has together. And support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in. Our links are below. Support us. Help us grow. Huge shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much. And we love you. Build your dreams. Execute. Build the future. We love you so much. We'll see you soon. Peace. Dance party time. Yeah.